If you have your Bibles, please, 1 Kings chapter 18. Before we get reading into this chapter, I want to give a little bit of backstory uh, to the main event that is going to happen. Today we're going to talk on the theme of Big God. We have a big God. We have an amazing God. We have a God that works in big ways. And if I were to ask each of you, at some point in your life, have you seen God work in your favor and on your behalf in a big way? And you would probably say, I have. And we have a very big God. If we were to start at Genesis this morning and work our way through all the way to Revelation, we would be here for a very long time. But in that time, we would see multiple times where God enters the picture in a big way and works on people's behalf in a very large way. We have a big God. He works in a big way. And here we see Elijah. He comes on the scene of the Bible in chapter 17 of 1 Kings. That's when he is first mentioned. That's his first arrival. And when he does that, he's delivering a message to a king, King Ahab. And the message pretty much is, it is not going to rain for a few years. The year is 874, and by this time, Israel has been divided into two kingdoms. It was one country, now it is split. We call it a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom retained the name Israel. The southern kingdom was renamed after its largest tribe, Judah. And today's events happen in that northern kingdom, Israel. No longer did Israel worship the true God. They had become attracted to idols that were introduced to their culture. They had, as a people, they had forgotten exactly all that God has done for them. They no doubt heard the stories that were told down generation after generation, how God allowed them to escape slavery in Egypt. And God parted those Red Seas, and God took care of the Egyptian army that was following after them. And for 40 years, God watched over them in the wilderness with his protection. He watered them. He fed them. He allowed their clothes to last for 40 years. Imagine a pair of shoes lasting for 40 years. If you have a teenager, you know shoes last about three months. Imagine 40 years. And God watched over them. And God saw great victories on their behalf as they came into the promised land with the conquering of Jericho and many things after that. But they, as a culture, had canceled God. The northern kingdom had six previous kings before Ahab. The first two were alcoholics. The third one was a murderer. The fourth one, a murderer also. The fifth one was accused of spiritual treason. The sixth one was described as being worse than the ones that were before him. And that lands us at king number seven, Ahab. Ahab is in a political marriage with a girl called Jezebel. Jezebel was not from Israel. She's from outside of Israel. Ahab married her. She came to live and be the queen of Israel. And when she came to Israel, she brought with her all of the idols from her past. At the top of the idols was an idol called Baal. And she, through her influence, think about it, she is the queen of Israel. All the girls look up to a queen. They themselves would like to be queen one day. When the queen does something, they mimic that and they mock that. They don't mock it, they follow after that. 
because they want to be just like the queen. This queen brought in Baalism. And her influence trickled down. And as a country, they are now worshiping Baal. Jezebel systematically persecuted, imprisoned, and executed the prophets of God. If she knew there was a prophet of God speaking on God's behalf, she went after them and imprisoned them but persecuted them, and many times to the point, executed them. She did not get to all of the prophets. A man by the name of Obadiah, no relation to the man that wrote the book, Obadiah. Obadiah worked in the royal household, but he had a heart for God. And he hid 50 of those prophets in one cave. He hid another 50 prophets in another cave, fed them water, gave them water, fed them food, and watched over them and tried to protect them as much as he could. Outside of those prophets was another prophet called Elijah. And he enters the scene in chapter 17. And he says, it will not rain for a few years here in Israel. And guess what? It did not rain. Everything turned brown. There was a hunt for water. The crops failed. It was obvious that they needed rain, for dew did not even come up out of the ground. Three years of that passed. It did not rain in Israel. Instead, it rained in Charlotte, from what I understand. Three years pass, and God speaks to Elijah again and says, I need you to go back to Ahab. Now, we learn the instructions that God gave Elijah verse by verse in chapter 18. And we're going to do the exercise of going verse by verse in this account. Elijah up front knew all of the instructions of what he was to do. We don't learn them until we discover them verse by verse. And step one for Elijah was, you go to Ahab. And so he does. In verse number 17 of chapter 18, we pick up today's story. And it came to pass... When Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? These two men meet, and who speaks first? Ahab. And Ahab, we have that old king's English, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? What was he saying? He's pointing a finger at Elijah and says, You are the reason we're in so much trouble in Israel today. Look around you. It's brown. Our cattle... They're hurting. Our people are hurting. And it's your fault. You are to blame for all of this. Now, knowing what you already know about Elijah, do you think he kept his mouth shut? He did not. Let's go down to the next verse, 18. And he, meaning Elijah, and he answered, I have not troubled Israel but thou and thy father's house, and that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and thou hast followed Balaam. Elijah here is just reminding that he and his father and his father's father and the kings that went all before him, they were caught up in idolatry and they have followed Baal. God was removed from their worship. God was removed from their government. He was removed from their schools. He was removed from their families. When you remove God out of a situation, it's only going to get worse and it's going to deteriorate. God was saying, you don't want me in your life? Let me show you life without the blessings of my presence. So Israel right now is facing the consequences of removing God from their environment. When God's removed from a school, there is a consequence that happens as a result of that. 
When God is removed from a government, there is a consequence. When he's removed from a country, there is a consequence. And God is telling Israel here, look, you are facing the consequences from removing me from your worship and from your life. Let's look at verse 19 now and we'll see the showdown that's going to happen. This is Elijah speaking. He says, now therefore send and gather to me all Israel unto Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal 450 and the prophets of the grove 400 which eat at Jezebel's table. Now let's remember, all of these steps are God's instructions for Elijah to take. He goes to Ahab. He says, Ahab, I want you to gather three different groups of people for me. And I want you to gather them at Mount Carmel. One, I want you to gather the people of Israel. Tell them, send out a decree. Tell them, meet us at Mount Carmel. Two, I want you to gather the prophets of Baal, 450 of them. And then I also want you to gather the prophets of Baal's girlfriend, Asherah. So we have three different groups. The people of Israel, the prophets of Baal, and also the prophets of Asherah. And he says, let's have a showdown of our two gods. And you know what Ahab says to that? He agrees. He agrees to the competition. The decree went out to gather the children of Israel and the prophets of Baal. And that leads us to verse 20. So Ahab sent on to all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him, not a word. Notice that word, halt. All the people got gathered. They're at Mount Carmel now. And Elijah looks at them and he says, he's looking at the people of Israel here, not the prophets, the people of Israel. He says, how long are you going to halt between two opinions? Now that word halt can mean different things. If you and I were walking down a sidewalk and we got to the road and I saw that a car was coming and you took that first step out, I'd probably let you go. No. If as you were taking that one step, I said, halt. One, you would stop. Two, you would say, did you just say halt? Yeah. It's a word I just want to kind of bring back in fashion, halt. Now, it's not really a word that we use a lot, but you would understand halt as meaning what? Stop. Stop. Elijah is not using that definition of halt here. He's not saying, how long are you just going to stay stuck in one place trying to decide who you're going to serve? But rather, it comes from the term halt of the context of the halt and the lame that came to Jesus. Those who hobbled when they walked. And Elijah is saying, how long are you going to hobble back and forth between God and Balaam? How long are you going to vacillate? How long are you going to hobble and just stumble your way from this God and to that God? When are you going to make up your mind as to which God you will serve? And as Elijah tells this to the people of Israel, do you know what their response was? Look at it on the screen, the very last line. And the people answered him, not a word. They had nothing to say back to Elijah. They were silent. But why? Simple. They weren't ready to commit. 
They no doubt wanted the blessing of God and they wanted the miracles of God, but they they did not want to jump in with both feet. They didn't want to fully commit to God. They wanted a little bit of what the Baal worship offered them and the pleasures that that gave. But they also wanted the blessings of God too. And they just would go back and forth. They would serve God on Sunday and serve Baal on Monday. How long will you go back and forth? Then that leads us to verse 22. After they didn't say anything back to him, Elijah speaks again. Then said Elijah unto the people, I, even I only, remain a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Elijah here starts doing some math between he and the Baal worshipers. And he says, it's 450 prophets of Baal and one of me. And truthfully, Elijah's not even counting the 400 prophets of Asherah. So if you want to be technical, it would be 850 to 1. But let's go with 450 since that's what the passage says. And that's what Elijah said, 450 to 1. If the odds were 450 to 1, I don't want to be that one. Those are not good odds. And Elijah is saying, I am outnumbered. But he is saying, I am willing to stand even though the numbers are not in my favor. When you're standing with God, numbers don't matter. When God calls you to do something and the odds just aren't in your favor, that doesn't matter. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. When God is in the equation, all of the other numbers in the equation don't matter. Elijah looks at the prophets of Baal, the prophets of Asherah, and he says, let's do this. Verse number 23, Elijah sets the rules for the demonstration that's going to happen. Let them, therefore, give us two bullocks, or oxen. And let them choose one bullock for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on wood and put no fire under. And I will dress the other bullock and lay it on wood and put no fire under. And call ye on the name of your gods. And I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God that answereth by fire, let him be God. And all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. So Elijah sets down the rules of the competition. You're going to have an altar. I'm going to have an altar. We got two oxen coming. You pick first whatever oxen you want. You put some wood on that altar. You put the oxen on that. And then we're both going to pray. You could go first. And the God that calls down, the God that brings down fire, that's the one true God of Israel. Do you know what the prophets of Baal said to that? Look at it. The last four words of the verse. It is well spoken. They said, We like that. What you just said, (laughs) the rules of the competition that you just like, that you just laid down, we like that. Why did they like that? Because Baal, to them, was the weather god. Baal was over the rain, which is pretty ironic, isn't it, since it hadn't rained for three years? Baal was over the rain. There's old pictures, not pictures, but drawings that demonstrate Baal holding a lightning bolt. So to them, for Baal to send down fire, to send down lightning from heaven is no big deal. And they said, we like those odds. We like those rules of engagement. Let's do that. In verse 26, and they took the bullock, which was given them, and they dressed it. 
and called on the name of Baal from morning even unto noon. I'm not sure what time they started. The Bible only tells us morning. And they get to the point of noon. So let's say about three or four hours. And the verse goes on saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, nor any that answered. And they leaped upon the altar which was made. It's their turn to go. And they start praying. But there is no response from heaven. Have you ever asked someone, can you hear me? And then they don't respond. So what do you do? Two things. You repeat, and you also what? Say it louder. Can you hear me? Can you hear, can you hear me? So hear the prophets of Baal. They start praying, there's no response. And what happens? They start praying louder. And they louder and louder. And then they jump up on the altar, hoping maybe that extra four or five feet to Baal would help him hear a little bit better. No voice from Baal, no fire from Baal. They jumped around with great energy and great fervency, but nothing. And then about noon, Elijah, who has been watching this for a few hours, steps up. And here we see Elijah has a little sense, a good sense of humor. Look at verse 27. And it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud. He's saying, Cry louder, for he is a God. Either he's talking or he is pursuing, or he is in a journey or peradventure. He sleepeth and must be awakened. Elijah begins to mock them and says, You know what? Maybe your God is talking to another God. Maybe he's just talking and he can't hear you talking, so you might want to talk louder. Or maybe he went inside and he just closed the door. Maybe he's on a trip. Or perhaps he's sleeping. You know, it is noon. Maybe he's taking a siesta. And you're going to have to wake him up. So yell louder, praise his name louder. And it goes on even more. For a full day, they prayed to their false god, Baal. No answer. The truth is, hope placed outside of God will always lead to disappointment. They started off the day really liking this competition that was going to happen. But their faith was in a false God. And God, their God could never respond. Hope that is placed in a person. Hope that is placed in an event. Hope that is placed in something that is down the road, a promise, will always disappoint. But hope placed in God will always happen and never disappoint. Finally, towards the end of the day, it's Elijah's turn. And he steps up. 850 exhausted prophets of Baal and Asherah. And it's Elijah's turn. Look at verse 30. And Elijah said unto all the people, Come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. When Elijah's turn, he just doesn't get right to it. He goes to the people of Israel and says, Come here. Come. Come closer. Yeah. He wanted them to see the spot where the altar used to be. It was broken down. It had not been used, perhaps, for generations. 
What was that altar used for before? Well, it was a place of sacrifice. They would bring their offering to God and lay it on that altar as an offering to God for thanking God for his blessings on their life. The altar would also be used as a sin sacrifice where they wronged God and they sinned and they offer a sacrifice for the covering of their sin. The fact that the altar was broken down and had not been used in so long demonstrates there were not offerings placed there, nor were there sin sacrifices placed there. The religion of Baal allowed them to do what they wanted to do without dealing with their sin. Baal let them have the pleasures that they wanted to have, do what they wanted to do, go where they wanted to go, act where they wanted to act, all without restrictions on them. They had religion. It just wasn't God was not a part of their religion. Religion will never save a person. Religion will never bring a peace or satisfaction. That only comes from God. It doesn't matter how many times we attend church. It doesn't matter how involved in the church we are. It doesn't matter how many boxes we check when it comes to religion that we have done and that we have accomplished if God is not a part of it. They had the religion of Baal, just didn't have God as a part of it. And Elijah, with the people of Israel now gathered close, he takes the 12 stones and he rebuilds that altar. He puts the wood on, he puts the oxen on it, and then he ups his game. Look at verse 33. And he put the wood in order and cut the bullock in pieces, he just butchered it, and laid him on the wood and said, Fill four barrels with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And he said, do it the second time. And they did it the second time. And he said, do it the third time. And they did it the third time. Elijah here, and I'm sure this is part of the original instructions that God gave him. He rebuilt that altar. He put the wood on it. He put the oxen on it. And then he said, I want you to bring four pitchers of water. Now, we're in the middle of a drought, so water is hard to come by, but they find it. And they pour the four pictures just right on that sacrifice. They said, do it again. Then do it again. So a total of 12 pictures were poured on that. Now, if I'm going to start a fire, I want to start with dry wood. Every man in this room has tried to start a fire with wet wood. Am I right? And every man in this room has had a wife look at him and say, I thought you knew how to light a fire. Just give me one of those logs with a wrapper on it, you know what I'm talking about, and light it. He wets the entire altar. And then he prays to his God, verse 36. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and I am thy servant. Now notice the next part of the verse, and that I have done all these things at thy word. And there we know that everything that he did is what God instructed him to do. And he acknowledges that in his prayer. All these things, Lord, building the altar, having them pray first, trying to call down fire from them, and even me now asking fire from heaven from you. 
all of this is according to your plan, according to the steps that you had me do. Then verse 37, hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Elijah is simply praying that God would accomplish his will and that everything he's done has been in accordance to what God had him do. And then verse 38, look at it. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. God showed up for Elijah just like he promised. He showed off his supreme power. The oxen got burnt up. The wood got burnt up. And the Bible says the stones even got burnt up. The dust that is around it, the water that pooled in the trench around the sacrifice, all burnt up. Nothing was left after the fire of God fell. What a big God. What a powerful God. So as the people of Israel are watching, they observe for a greater part of the day the prophets of Baal. Elijah... Builds the altar, pours some water on it, steps up, prays, bam, fire fell. How did the people of Israel react to that? Verse 39 tells us. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces. And they said, the Lord, he is God. And then they repeat themselves. The Lord, he is God. They saw the power of God, and all they could do is fall on their face in worship. And we need to see God working in great ways in our lives, and God showing up in great ways, and God working in ways that only he can. And when he demonstrates himself in that way, we acknowledge, God, only you could orchestrate that. Only you could provide for us in that way, because we have a big God. God is so big that he exceeds in all things. I want to show you one more verse. You don't have to turn there. We'll put it up on the screens. And it's Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. It says, Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly, abundantly above all that we ask or think to the power that worketh in us. I want you to notice three words in that verse. The first word is the last verse in the first line, exceeding. And then abundantly and above. You could take out any two of those three words, and the verse would still read the same. You could say, now unto him that is able to do exceedingly all that we ask, or able to do abundantly all that we ask, or able to do above all that we ask. The Apostle Paul, when he is writing this, he is tripping over himself, trying to describe just how good God is. He says, God is, he could do like exceedingly, abundantly, above All that we ask or think. You see, God exceeds in all. God just didn't make one drop of water. He made all of the oceans. He just didn't make a star. He made galaxies. And some of those galaxies are so so far away, we can only see them with a telescope. And I bet there's galaxies even further than that that we cannot see with the telescopes that we have today. He didn't just create a single type of bird or fish or insect, or dog, or cattle. He created hundreds of thousands of different types. God exceeds in all. But more so than that, God exceeds more than you expect. God can not only forgive a sin, 
He could forgive all sins. God could forgive a sin that we committed this week. Today's Sunday, first day of the week, right? Yeah, he could forgive a sin that we committed this morning. He could forgive a sin that we committed last week. God can exceed more than we expect in that he could even forgive a sin that we did 10 years ago and have yet to ask him for forgiveness. Any bitterness that we're holding in our heart towards someone, any anger that we're still having down inside us that maybe goes back to something that happened 30 years ago, can God forgive that? And the answer is simply, yes, he can. He can not only forgive a sin, he can forgive all sins. God not only gives strength for today, but he gives bright hope for tomorrow. He can not only meet a need that we have, he promises to meet all of our needs according to his will. And even his salvation, it's not restricted to a race. It's not restricted to an ethnic group or a country or a generation. It includes everyone from all times who turn to him. God not only exceeds more than you expect, he exceeds expectations with excellence. There is no limit to the love of God. God doesn't limit his love to a group of people or to the person that's working hard enough and trying hard enough. He loves all. There are no fences keeping us from accessing his faithfulness. There are no boundaries keeping us from his salvation. His grace is available to all. His compassion is available to all. The problem is, we think in ordinary terms, and God thinks in extraordinary terms. We think, just let me, just let me have enough to get by. And God thinks, I want to give to you in abundance. We think, I just need to manage this addiction. I just need to get this addiction under control. And God thinks, I want to give you complete freedom, complete victory. I want to break every chain of bondage in your life. But we think ordinary. Well, God's extraordinary. We think, I hope I have a good day. And God says, I want to give you a joyful life. We're human, so we think within the realm of possibilities. And we try to think, or we often think of what's possible. And God says, I want to do more than that. I want to demonstrate in your life the impossible. And you might be here today and you say, I have trouble believing that that can happen in my life. I have trouble believing I can get complete peace. I can get complete freedom. Complete forgiveness, complete victory. Scripture tells us that if we have enough faith that is just equal in the amount of a mustard seed, that we could do the impossible. Why does the Bible use the word mustard seed to demonstrate that we just need a little bit of faith? You got to remember who the audience for the Bible is. At that time, the smallest seed that they were aware of was the mustard seed. Very, very tiny. He says, if you have faith that equals the size of a mustard seed, nothing is impossible. You know what God could have said? He could have said, if you have great faith, and if you never doubt, if you never get discouraged, then I'll do something big in your life. But God knew we'd be weak in faith. 
So he said, only a little bit of faith is necessary for me to show up and work in your life and exceed all expectations. And the fact that you're here today, the fact that you're listening, tells me you have at least that mustard seed faith. You want to hear God speak to you. You have the faith necessary for God to act in your behalf in great ways. So what can we learn from this example of Elijah that we have? A couple of things I want to pull out as a conclusion. One, follow God's leading in your life. Everything Elijah did, he acknowledged, this is what God had me do. And I followed it step by step. Was it easy, Elijah? (laughs) No, it wasn't easy. Was it easy going up to Ahab knowing his wife Jezebel is exterminating all of the prophets across the country? It's not easy. But follow God's leading in your life. Number two, don't worry about the odds against you or the odds of success. Elijah's standing there and he says, man, it's 450 to 1. These are not good odds. But God was on his side. You see, when you follow God's leading in your life, the odds don't matter. It doesn't matter if the odds of success are there. We don't have to worry, am I going to fail? Because God is in it. If we follow him, we will be successful. Also, don't worry if it's something you've never done before. Had Elijah ever had this kind of competition before in his life? The school of prophets did not have a course on how to call fire down from heaven. So why did he do it if it's something he's never done? Because God led him. God led him to do this. He didn't care what the odds were. And he didn't care if it was something that he's never done before. And God, maybe right now, maybe next week, maybe sometime this year in 2021, God's going to step into your life and he's going to lead you to do something. And the odds don't seem to be in your favor. It's something that you've never done before. It's outside of what you are comfortable doing. If God is leading you to do that, know this, we have a big God. He will show himself faithful. He will exceed all of our expectations, and he will do it with excellence. And also, we need to understand there is forgiveness for all who turn to him. Those prophets of Baal, if at any point... During that morning when they were praying, trying to get Baal's attention. If at any point one of them crossed the line and said, that, that's not working. Cross the line to join Elijah. They would have seen forgiveness at any point. You might be here wondering or listening online wondering, can God forgive some of the things I did? I don't know of a single person that would forgive me. Why would God? But the answer is simple. He will forgive not just a sin. He will forgive all sins. We have a big God. A God that wants to work on our behalf. And as he leads and as he guides, may we take those steps to see him work in our life in a great way. Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, 
head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing, and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.